Welcome everyone to this week's edition of the Commercial Real Estate 101 Meetup Group. Uh, for those of you guys who are tuning in for the first time, uh, we meet on a bi-monthly basis and interview people all across the country uh, on a variety of different commercial real estate topics. And today we have uh, two phenomenal guests. Uh, so two for the price of one today. Uh, one of them being a, a friend of mine from college. Uh, we were fraternity brothers at Arizona State University, and he's a director at, at uh, you know, Cushman and Wakefield. And then pronounce your name again. I'm sorry. I want to make sure I'm saying it correctly. Sure. Nehal Wadwa. Nehal Wadwa, who's a senior associate at this at the same division uh, for uh, Cushman and Wakefield. So we're honored to have you guys to learn about the medical office uh, industry. I think it is a phenomenal uh, property type to invest in. I'll, and I'll, obviously, if you're a doctor as well and, and looking to operate within the space, a, a functional space like that, it's, it's good to know uh, the nuances of the property type. So we're honored to have you guys and welcome. Well, thank, thank you for you. having us. Oh, for sure. No. So Usually what we like to do when we first get started is we like to learn a little bit more about the people that we're interviewing. So if you guys don't mind kind of giving a, a, a bio about you guys and what got you into the space. So I guess we'll start off with, Joe, do you want to start off? Yeah, sure. So um, a typical story probably that many people have heard. My uh, father was in real estate. He was a commercial broker uh, agency office in Phoenix, um, all my time growing up, I had swore that I wouldn't have done what he was going to do. So when I was at uh, ASU with Raphael, I was studying finance, business law, wanted to get into banking, wealth management, something like that. But um, as time went on, and as I was interviewing and just talking to people, the, those that were in real estate seemed significantly happier um, with more interesting day-to-day -day jobs and, and, and tasks than the uh, banking and wealth management internships that I was doing at the time. So um, just, you know, try to work the network, the, uh, the, the lunch uh, merry-go-round, as I call it, to, uh, to younger folks looking to get in now, get a lunch with one person that intros you to another person to another person, ended up uh, while I was in San Diego meeting my uh, my and Nahal senior partner, uh, Travis Ives, who uh, was standing up the healthcare group at Cushman in San Diego. Stars aligned, they needed a, a young runner at the time, and I was graduating college in a, in a couple of months, and, uh, and they took a chance at me straight out of college. So have been doing healthcare uh, leasing and sales in San Diego since uh, I graduated back in uh, 2014. That's awesome. And Nihal, do you, would you like to provide some some context as well? Sure. My um, my path to real estate is is a windy path. Um, I started. Um, my background is actually finance and accounting. I went to UT Austin, and uh, worked in operations, business operations. Worked for Enron. Worked for McMaster Car, um, and then you know decided. My husband at the time was a, a resident. Um, and, you know, we, he wanted to, he was trying to decide, should he start his own practice or should he go work for someone um, and decided to start his own practice. So I quit what I was doing and helped him um, start up his practices. Um, and then, you know, healthcare just kind of found me that way. Um, I always say I didn't choose healthcare, it chose me. <laughs> and, you know, kind of did a deep dive into practice management, practice consulting. Um, but, you know, I, being in California, just loved the real estate market, um, loved learning about it. So I've had my broker's license for years and years. Um, and as I was consulting for different groups and doctors, I, I started looking for space for them. Um, a, a, a very good friend of ours asked me to join him. Um, he's a broker in, in, at a Carlsbad. And so I, I joined him and started uh, doing some deals. 
and just realized it was just a great intersection between the accounting, the finance, the, the business ops, the medical, and then my love for real estate. So, um, you know, I kind of kept in touch with Travis. We had done, we had done a deal together. I just kind of kept in touch with him throughout the years. And, you know, when the opportunity opened up, um, was happy to, to jump on board here at Cushman. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and, and it's interesting to hear you guys' backgrounds and, and how you get in the commercial real estate business. And, you know, we've had a lot of people on that, that's similar to Joe, who he had had family members in the industry, but then there's also people who come in from completely different sides of the spectrum. I mean, Joe, Joe knows I was in engineering and, you know, got into the commercial brokerage business a few years ago. And that was all through just sitting down with grabbing lunch with people and realizing, oh, this seems like a pretty interesting you know, industry, and then kind of doing more of my own independent research, and then deciding that it was a path I wanted to take. So it's always interesting to hear people's backgrounds, because it's not a linear path, you know, so yeah. it's very, very interesting to hear you say that. So one thing that we like to do too, pertaining to the topics is we like to establish and get an understanding of what exactly the, the, the topic of the discussion is, and this is medical office. And obviously, there's a lot of nuances to medical office, depending on what type of practice you're in. Uh, so can you kind of elaborate exactly what you, how you define medical office or also healthcare real estate is, I guess, what we can define it as? Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll take a stab at it. Um, maybe an, an easy way to categorize it. And then, um, you know, maybe you can look at it from the other thing. I'll, I'll take a note too. You know, we're super lucky to have Nahal because a lot of brokerage teams, right? It's a lot of people that come from my path right? Come from straight brokerage. All you know is lease comps from day one. You know, you, you know, you kind of don't have any outside perspective where differentiator for our team and why we were super fortunate to bring Nahal on is she comes from the other perspective. So, you know, maybe when I describe something, it's just based on a real estate background. You have that kind of medical perspective ingrained where you, you can't teach that, right? You have to live it for years and years. Um, so her answer might be a little bit different to mine. Um, and that's why, you know, self-pitch to our team. I think that's why we're a pretty unique team because uh, that's rare in, in, in what we do. But I would say healthcare real estate in general, you can maybe look at it as like the, uh, on a spectrum of acuity, you have everything from inpatient, uh, think hospitals, think overnight inpatient rehab, uh, all the way down the levels of acuity to something more like an outpatient rehab. Um, then you get into just your standard medical office building where you're going in and, and uh, maybe at a higher level of acuity, you're getting plastic surgery or orthopedic surgery or surgery center. Continue down that path, you, you have kind of your just typical medical office building. Um, and then, you know, even further down that path, you have behavioral health or physical therapy where, you know, the, the build out might be even less than a typical office building. So there's a huge spectrum, right? That's, that can range from three, 400 a foot to north of a thousand dollars a foot to build, right? Uh, it all kind of falls under the umbrella of healthcare. Definitely. Yeah. No, and I, and I would just, Go ahead, no, sorry. I would just add to that, um, you know, when it comes to thinking about um, healthcare real estate, we work with groups that are, that are large doctor groups to the individual doctors. So we're doing, you know, medical office real estate to me is everything from the, the, you know, maybe small office condo, medical office condo, um, all the way up to your health system level. So as Joe said, you know, it kind of runs a spectrum of different specialists, different size buildings, different types of buildings. Um, so it's, it's vast and it's varied. And I think that's what makes it super interesting and exciting as well. 
Yeah. And I think it lends itself too to, to the fact that working with professionals who specialize in this sort of thing is, is extremely important because there are so many different nuances that a lot of people who are more of a generalist type of, of approach may or may not understand. And, and like you were mentioning, the acuity level, depending on what you're focused on, there may be different licensing, there may be different regulations that are pertaining to whatever the industry is. And, you know, obviously what a dentist is going to need is maybe different than what a plastic surgeon need versus an OBGYN or whatever. So you know, having that understanding, I think is, is a value and that's what the value you guys provide as, as, you know, advisors. So um, one thing I wanted to ask, and, and, and obviously our audience varies widely. We have brokers that tune in, we have investors who tune in, we have uh, banking professionals. So really it's tailored to the commercial real estate industry. But one thing that I really wanted to touch on is the investing side of, of medical office. I'm sure you guys are seeing a lot of money out there. I know we're seeing it in our local market in Louisville where people are coming in outside of, of our just local market to invest locally. And medical office seems to be one of those hot, hot property types that a lot of people like. And so I wanted to kind of touch on, you know, what are some of the pros and cons that you're seeing or do you think uh, are attributable to the, the space itself? If you could elaborate, I think that'd be great. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll take a jump or maybe to set the stage on that, uh, mm -hmm. Nail and I were talking, you know, Nail, maybe you kind of explain what's going on, on the, you know, we call it the retailization of healthcare, um, the change in reimbursement structures, uh, that kind of what's driving all this downstream, uh, and Nail is better equipped than I am to kind of give a, a brief, but understandable, uh, overview of that. Yeah, I think, um, what's, and, and, you know, I can speak pretty specifically to the San Diego market, but I think in general, it's kind of a trend overall throughout the country. Um, health systems, physicians office, I mean, you name it, whatever type of medicine someone is in, um, they want the visibility. It's become a very, um, you know, branded sort of industry where everybody wants that visibility. And so what used to be, you know, maybe you would go to your physician who was in a, in a medical office building somewhere and they didn't have like a big huge sign outside their building. It was just, you knew that was where your doctor was. That's, that's changing. And you're finding that, you know, as you go through your community, you're seeing, you know, um, scripts on a building or you're seeing sharp on a building or UCSD. And so these groups um, are all competing for um, a patient population. And so they're trying to get into the communities and be closer to the, the, um, the homes and where people live. And it's all about accessibility at this point. So, um, you know, are they accessible? Are they easy to get to? Are they in your community? Um, you know, it, it, it's less about having um, concentrated campuses, although that still exists, but it's more about having visibility in the community. Um, and so what's, you know, all of these groups are kind of fighting for that market share. It's become a very, very competitive industry. Um, and so I think that's what's driving some of, of, the, of the movement to these medical office buildings. Um, I think uh, during COVID um, with office somewhat struggling, I think, and Joe, you can probably talk more to this as well. There was more of a movement towards, you know, trying to repurpose some of these buildings as well. So an office building maybe sitting on the side of a freeway that wasn't as occupied as you would might want it to be, um, might have gone through, you know, a health system might have seen that opportunity and said, hey, you know, that's great visibility for our practice and for our system. And we want to be in that community. Um, and, and they would, they would, go ahead and repurpose that building um, and do a conversion to medical. 
Um, and so we see that even happening in retail centers. So during COVID when maybe, you know, there were retail strip centers that were hurting, there are medical groups that are coming in and taking retail space um, to have that visibility in the community. You'll see urgent cares, you'll see um, maybe some, some primary cares that, that go into that space to, to be a part of that community, get into that, into that setting. Um, and then have that marketability. Um, and so retail centers are also looking at adding, adding these groups. So, you know, just take for instance, um, Walgreens, um, you know, they just increased um, its stake in a primary care company called Village MD, and they became a majority partner. They invested $5.2 billion in this. Um, and they're gonna open hundreds of clinics um, through that partnership over the next four years. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of repositioning going on. I'm sure you guys have heard about the CVS, Aetna, you know, kind of they're all entwined to see Aetna owns CVS and um, CVS is closing stores, but likely repositioning themselves as more of a um, healthcare offering with, you know, with selling some retail items, but more of a healthcare, you know, provider. So, you know, there's definitely a shift happening to where medicine wants to be in the community. Um, and that's kind of driving, um, you know, different, I guess, different investment opportunities in medical office building. And Joe, you can probably touch on more about the conversion. Yeah, uh, that's exactly right. You know, I, I'm someone that needs something to explain very, very simply to me. And one of the best ways that I can kind of capture all that in a sentence is medicine's changing from fee to service to fee to result or fee for result. So back in the day, the doctor didn't care where they were operated, right? You had to go to their behemoth outdated campus because it was a fee for a service. They didn't really care if it was for you or you got better. They got reimbursed for every knee operation they did where now it's more the health systems get reimbursed if you go in and get your knee fixed and then you never have to get it fixed again, you're healthy, right? And as part of that, you are have to push into the community and make it more accessible to the community. So Nehal touched on it. You know, that being said, there's kind of two, two maybe, maybe major food groups within healthcare. There's the core and the core plus assets, and then there's the value add assets. Really, the core uh, properties, if you're looking at, you know, I don't know the entire profile of the investors in this group, but most people that are buying core and core plus are institutional. They're buying at a four cap, a five cap. You know, we're seeing things move into the three cap these days. Uh, it's viewed as a defense against market downturns. There's a whole host of reasons why those core and core plus buildings make a ton of sense, right? There's life coasters trying to park money there. Uh, very difficult to compete at that level if you're a private investor. Really what we see those kind of private um, or even private equity backed uh, smaller private investors operate in is that value add portion of the market, right? And that's, you know, when you're looking at that cap rate, is it as important there? They're, they're looking at NOI growth. They're, they're looking at levered IRR over the term. And um, they're looking at that exactly in the buildings that Nahal mentioned, right? You're looking at a office building that is well-positioned. It's well-parked. It has, um, you know, there, there's kind of like eight things we look for on a medical office conversion. Maybe it has four or more of those already in place. So the renovation to the building itself isn't that much relative to um, starting from scratch, if you will. Um, and really that's, that's the game plan for these people. They go in with three to five year money, value add money. Um, you spend you know, a relatively low amount to rehab the building, whether that's 
updating the parking lot, whether it's putting in more robust uh, plumbing and MEP and HVAC to serve the, the larger loads that you're going to get with the medical tenants. But really, the bulk of the money is spent on funding the, uh, the tenant improvements, right? Medical office compared to office, you're about double, right? If it's going to cost you $60 to build an office space, a square foot, it's going to cost you $180 to build a uh, medical office space that's on the high end but depending on, on what you're doing you know anywhere we're seeing from 150 um, plus or minus 20 dollars a foot these days to build out a medical space that being said you're getting maybe 25 to 50 percent uh, bump on office rents on a medical rent but you know really what you're getting is you're getting better tenancy in a more stable um, industry you're getting longer lease terms you're getting more sticky tenants that have a higher probability of renewing and all that is kind of accepted in the underwriting and then on the back end you're getting a better valuation um, on the NOI just because of the asset class because of the barriers to entry to your building um, because of the tenancy because of, of the perceived stabilization of the tenants so that's where we're seeing people go in. They're buying these buildings. They're they're targeting a kind of mid-teens levered IRR on a three to five year hold where you buy these office buildings that Nahal mentioned on the side of the freeway that's 50, 60% uh, occupied. Lease those spaces with a high TI, 10 year term, $100 a foot in uh, construction to land some medical tenants. As those office tenants uh, expire, you backfill with uh, medical tenants, or you sell the dream to the next person. Hey, look, this building's 50% medical, long-term tenancy here. It's a proven concept. The location is there. The parking's there. The, the building features are there. And, you know, the next buyer, you sell them the dream that they just continue down that path, lease out the rest to a medical office building. Now it's a fully stabilized medical office. And, you know, th then you're going in there selling to a, a larger fund at a four or a five cap. Uh, and we're seeing a lot of new people come into, come into the market. Too. Like you mentioned, Raphael, there's there is uh, money coming in from everywhere, from office investors, from retail investors, from, I mean, shoot, it, literally every corner of the capital universe. Yeah, oh. and, I, and I would just say it's, you know, for the smaller office buildings, you know, we have, we have physician groups and, and smaller, smaller uh, provider groups that are looking to purchase office buildings. I would say between, Joe, what do you think, between the 5,000 square foot to 20,000 square foot um, office footprint, that's pretty hard to find even. And, you know, when they do come on, they, they go pretty quickly um, because there is this, this, this trend to want to own your own medical office building. Um, and, and those are tougher to find. Um, so, you know, there, there, there's definitely been an uptick in the market in that arena. Yeah, that's a whole separate thing. And we were just talking about investors to your question, Raphael, but there's a line around the block for owners and owner users to buy these buildings. Um, we had just told someone the other day, it's like, he's, they were like, yeah, we think it's worth this. And I'm like, you know, yes, in a rational market, but this is an irrational market. And if your rents are at record highs and money is at record lows, really at any price, it makes sense for you to own this building if your horizons, you know, if your practice horizons over the next 20 years. So, yeah. I mean, oh, for sure. And that's, and that's kind of lends into the next question that I had was related to the owner user side. And, and, and primarily I, I'd like to get an idea of the, the process by which you guys follow as far as identifying locales and then analyzing those locales for those individuals. Like, could you kind of talk about some of the common pitfalls or any of the, you know, the characteristics that you identify and some of the things that people should consider if they are owner users looking to, uh, you know, acquire a property for their use? No, you want to take that one? 
Sure. Um, yeah. So if you're an owner user, we have, I mean, Joe and I, we have access to um, different databases where we are able to pull um, forecasted demand for that specialty. We're able to pull um, competitive um, footprints to, to show, hey, okay, you want to start a pain management practice. Um, here are, you know, seven other competitors around you. Where are they located? What, what health systems are they affiliated with? Um, so we try to give them kind of a lay of the land um, and, and at least advise them on the competitive landscape. And then from there, just depending on where they have a desire to open their practice when, when looking at a building um, or a location, we're looking at, um, you know, is it zoned properly? Is it parked properly? Um, you know, what is, how is it going to look for patient flow? What are, what's your ADA, um, you know, capability in that building? Um, we're looking at, you know, how much of the interior infrastructure is going to have to be modified, how many improvements are going to have to be made to, to, to basically put in what it is you want to do. Are you going to need a procedure room, um, how many exam rooms, and et cetera. But I think you asked, what are some of the common pitfalls, um, you know, that maybe an owner user might make? Um, I think, you know, I, I, I think when you're looking at where you want to start your practice, um, you can't necessarily identify it based on, oh, I want to be, you know, in, in this market, in this beautiful building and, and have this great, you know, payer mix population. I, I think you really have to have an understanding of, you know, who, where, where are your patients um, coming from? Um, what insurances do they have? Um, you know, if you're, in a, if you're in a location where it's heavily HMO driven, um, and most of your patients are going to go to that HMO system, then you're probably, even though it seems like there's a demand there, you've just got to understand um, the, the insurance footprint of that area. So then you've got to decide, okay, should I go somewhere where, you know, there's more of a PPO population. Um, I have more physicians in that area that can refer to me because they're not affiliated with an HMO group. So there are a lot of decisions that go into, into where you're gonna start your practice or where you're gonna be an owner user of, of a building. Um, so we try to walk, walk our clients through those, those different scenarios and try to give them as much information as we can. Sometimes a good healthcare decision is not a good real estate decision. Someone told me once from the healthcare side. So you have to kind of weigh those two functions, even though it's overpriced or, or, or a building that you otherwise would have buy. The, the stuff that Nahal's talking about, it just sometimes drives you to the decision. It makes healthcare sense, but not necessarily your number one real estate choice, all things equal. Definitely. Yeah, no, and, and I think it's super important what you mentioned regarding the data that you provide your clients. And you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of systems out there that aggregate data for you know different functions. You know, how much does the populace in this area spend on you know healthcare for different purposes? You know, and so getting an idea of the landscape and then the competitive landscape too. I'm sure, especially. I mean, do you see a, a big trend for you know doctors starting to go out on their own more, or is it just depends on the type of 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 use, or I guess the type of physician they they personally are? Or how, what what does that trend look like for for the landscape? I think two or three years ago, the uh, independent physician and the employed physician it had it had that inflection point, um, and it's not changing. It is a endangered species. It's the independent <laughs> physician. Right, Nahal? I mean, you, oh, you're, yeah. you're living in it. 
it's just not, there's no way, right? Yeah, it's, there are so many challenges to being an independent physician. Um, compliance um, challenges where the government keeps moving the ball in one direction or the other, and it's very, very difficult to track. Um, you've got so many expenses that, that are required of private doctor's offices now. Um, you know, EMR systems that cost an arm and a leg, um, reimbursements that are going down for private doctors because you, you don't have the economies of scale to negotiate large contracts or, or good paying contracts. Um, it, it's, it's, it's really tough to start a private practice at this point, I think, in this market. And I think the trend, you know, I mean, a physician looks at this and they're like, you know what, like, it's already high stress. It's already high liability. It's already all those things. And now I'm going to take on, you know, trying to run a business on top of all of it um, in an environment that's constantly changing. And they look at the numbers and their time and they just say, you know what, I'm just going to go work for someone. It's just easier. <laughs> uh, a better quality of life. And that reflects in the real estate, Rafael, um, even older medical office buildings, uh, we're, we're going in there and we're demoing those, this, the small independent thousand square foot office that that's, that's becoming more of a thing of the path past. We are going in demoing all of that building larger four or five, 6,000 square foot office, um, or floor plates for these either private equity, um, aggregated groups, health system groups, health system affiliated, you know, medical groups. That's kind of the future of the tenancy is those larger blocks of space. And it, at the end of the day, it's a, it's a benefit to the investors because there's a credit enhancement that comes with that. Um, but if you own a, own a older office or an older medical building, you, you are probably going to have to restructure a ton of your existing layout, uh, to, to get that in enhancement of credit. Definitely. No. And that actually perfectly leads into the next question, which is pertaining to the ownership. So let's say that I'm a property owner and I own a well-located office building and I have had struggles as far as maybe filling the office space. What are some of the steps that I can take to say, okay, well, maybe this could be a perfect situation where I invest some capital into my building in order to convert it into a functional medical use. What are some of the considerations and steps that they need that property owners can take in order to maybe, you know, reposition their asset to now, you know, be more attractive to some of these medical uses. As long as there's the kind of base things already, which I'm sure they, you know, when you're asked at the point where they're asking themselves that question, they've probably already checked that the zoning's there, the parking's there. It makes sense from an access point and, and greater lands, competitive landscape. Uh, we always, first and foremost, build a spec suite, build a medical spec suite. It takes, at least in California, and I'm sure it's better everywhere else in the country, but it takes nine months to, uh, to build a space. And six of those months are pulling permits. Um, so, you know, a lot of these doctor groups or even the more sophisticated ones, they're, they're not out ahead of schedule by a year, right? They need a space in a month um, or two months because they lift their head up from a surgery and realize their lease is expiring and they hate their landlord. Um, so, you know, first and foremost, you build a next suite and um, even if they don't take that space uh, it can showcase what the rest of the building can look like um, uh, so that's one part of it but the other part is you build a spec suite a medical spec suite someone gets in there right away when the next doctor is in there okay look there's already a doctor here they've been here how long okay they're successful they haven't closed up shop all right you know case case uh, proven a little bit right so Really, the first step would be you build a spec suite, a little bit of a speculative risk, but you start proof of concept and you start being able to offer 
an immediate solution to someone that's out in the market. And, you know, I don't think we built a spec suite that hasn't leased out now. I'm trying to think of a time we built a spec suite and it hasn't been taken. Um, and it hasn't been taken at the kind of top of the market economics because they're willing to pay for that, willing to pay for the speed to market. Um, after that, a lot of it too is, you know, if you have a good quality offering in terms of the building profile, you just have to be willing and able to the money to build out the space. Um, that's really what differentiates our successful clients from those clients that we have that have had vacancies sitting for a while is you have to be willing to spend the 80 to hundred dollars a foot in our markets, different across markets to land uh, the groups. They're not coming out of pocket. They're going to pay a premium over whatever your, you know, as is rent would be in that building. If you as the landlord will take the cost, right? Medical groups, had Neil mentioned reimbursements. It's a razor's thin margin business. They don't have a hundred, three hundred thousand dollars sitting on the sidelines. Um, but you know, they, they they cash flow well every month, so they're willing to pay a rate. They're willing to pay a rent plus an amortized rent for the space. And if you can offer that, it almost uh, would offset any other perhaps perceived issues your building has compared to the nice nicer better located newer building down the street where the doctor is looking at having to come out of pocket a hundred thousand dollars and i think oh, um I, I think that when it comes to um you know we'll, i think we've seen um plastic surgeons dentists um you know cat there's a lot of cash pay in medicine um there are a lot of specialties that are cash pay and um you know in in those situations i think there's an opportunity. So if you're, you know, if you're trying to figure out should you convert or not, I mean, maybe looking at a demand forecast in that area for what these specialties are in, in your market um, would also be a good place to start. But, you know, there's, there's a market for not only um, insurance-based um, physicians and providers, but there's, there's quite a bit of cash pay as well. Definitely. No. And, and, and have you seen, I guess, lenders being receptive as far as, you know, approaching, the lender saying, Hey, look, I'm looking to do this spec build for this particular space that I own. I, are, I guess, are there lenders out there that are a little bit more receptive to that type of, uh, you know, process? I think so. Yeah. I, um, I'm trying to think a lot of those groups that are doing the spec suites, they're, they're a little more sophisticated. They have access to capital and a long relationship with these lenders that trust them and kind of let them do whatever they would like. Um, so you, but, you know, even a relationship anchor at your local bank, I think um, as long as you have somewhat of a track record, or even if you don't, you're willing to sign your name on the line, will fund the, um, the money for something like that. All of the banks, at least in our neck of the woods, have uh, dedicated buckets of capital for healthcare. Um, it, it, within the greater bucket of professional services, they look at it with you know lawyers, dentists, doctors, um, where you know they're they're out there looking at everything else, right? They're, they're not going to spec a accountant office, right? Because they're all working from home or, or real estate office, right? But I always joke, you're not getting your colonoscopy at home anytime soon. So uh, the capital is, is behind it, right? It's, it's behind healthcare in general. And if that takes the form of building out a speculative medical space, I mean, in our market, there's been single digit vacancies in every sub market for the past 14 quarters. Uh, 
that's a much easier business case to prove out to your investment committee, at whatever banking level you're, you're trying to get funding from. Awesome insights for sure. So one final question before we open up to Q and a, so if you guys are listening to this and you'd want to type away in the chat box, your questions, we'll go ahead and be reading those off uh, line by line. Uh, but one thing I wanted to ask you too was pertaining to the future of the medical office space. And so if you could kind of provide some insights pertaining to where you see the industry going over the next five to 10 years. Now let you go first so I can think. Yeah. Well, I, you know, it, it goes back to what we talked about earlier. Um, you know, the demand for, for medicine is going to exist. Like Joe said, I, it, it's going to exist. And the demand for medicine is going to continue growing according to all the demand forecasts that we've seen. So um, that being said, how it's delivered might be different. So, you know, as we touched on, it's, you may not have the private doctor's office that, you know, it's kind of a thing of the past. You just have a one-on-one -on -one relationship with your doctor and that's it. But, you know, the way it's delivered might be through a health system model um, where everything is connected. And, you know, in the past, you know, different regulatory and, and um, different regula regulations have tried to kind of consolidate these, these systems and um, provide, they call it consolidated care. So I think medicine will be delivered as consolidated care where you go to a health system and they have all your records and everything's in the EMR and you can go from one doctor to another, but everybody's connected. And so I think it, it's gonna be delivered through, through these larger health systems and groups that are going to cast their nets over the communities and try to pull in these patient populations. But medicine is still gonna be there. It just may not be delivered in the way that, that we have traditionally seen it in the past. And I think you're gonna see it in, in more retail settings as well. And uh, how that kind of, I guess, uh, pulls through into the real estate part of it, it's gonna look much more like a, it was always viewed as an alternative asset class until just a couple of years ago. It was, uh, it was fraction and um, fractionalized just like it was, just like the healthcare uh, system was, right? And as it becomes more consolidated on the healthcare industry, the, the real estate asset class of healthcare real estate is gonna become more cohesive and um, kind of streamlined and um, not alternative, right? More mainstream. So it's gonna look more like, you know, you lease out a hundred thousand square foot building to one group or two groups at most where before you had 50 tenants in there. Um, it's gonna look like you're getting corporate credit on these 22,000 square foot urgent care in a retail hospital because it's, it's the health system or urgent care. There's no longer these independent urgent cares anymore. So it's gonna look uh, much more like your class A corporate traditional office uh, real estate at the end of the day, is, is, is kind of where I'm seeing it going. Yeah, and even if it's not health system, then you're, you're gonna have larger private equity groups that are consolidating medicine. So you're gonna have you know one type or another consolidation happening. It's just the only way to make the, the margins in medicine work nowadays. Yeah. And, and consolidation happens across different industries as well. I know we had several people talk about, uh, you know, the self-storage business. It used to be a lot more mom and pop and it's becoming a lot more, uh, you know, consolidated with larger groups that are owning a significant number of these property types across the country. So I would imagine similar in the, in the medical space. So that's awesome. All right. So what we're going to go ahead and do now is we're going to open up to Q and A. So if you guys are listening to this any, uh, on LinkedIn, feel free to type away in the chat box and it looks like we already have some questions coming in on Zoom. So uh, Eli, so hey, Eli, how's it going? 
He says, um, what is your take on health plan price transparency and how will this affect healthcare consumption and delivery? Well, um, it's significant and it's, it's working its way through um, different uh, legislative bodies right now. Um, so I think that, yes, there is gonna be a lot more transparency um, and I think it's gonna be great for the consumer. Um, and at the end of the day, um, you know, it's going to generate more choices when it comes to your health, you know, what, what you pick for your health care. I'll give you an example. Um, if, if you go to a private doctor right now and you go in for, you know, let's say a, a broken arm, you might get charged, you know, $90 for, you know, the, the cast based on the, the uh, you'll get charged $90 for the x-ray, you'll get charged maybe a thousand bucks for the cast that's put on, but let's say it's an emergency and you can't get in touch with your private doctor and you go to, you know, a hospital system. Um, well, you're not necessarily going to be given their entire cost breakdown, right, when you get there into their emergency room, and then you're going to get billed later at system rates, right? So that's not transparent. So, you know, as things become more transparent and you are given more information, you're going to be making these choices about where you want to go based on price, right? And so it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to create, I think, a more competitive system is what's going to happen with your delivery of care. And it's already starting to happen. It's starting to happen. And if you, you know, maybe to take the real estate part of that, you're looking, I mean, it's gonna be like uh, when you make retail decisions, you know, is, are you gonna draw, are you willing to draw, you know, you're gonna know your prices. It's like when you're ordering food or picking up stuff, it's like, am I willing to drive 20 minutes to save $5 or am I just gonna go to the urgent care down the street? Maybe it's $2 more, but it's two, five minutes away or it's equal price. I'm gonna to go to the one that's closer. When you have those prices on your phone that you can look up, just like any other service, I mean, it's one of the few services that you can't look up and compare prices. You can't, you know, you pull up Amazon when you're at the store to see if it's cheaper on Amazon. You're going to be able to do that with healthcare, right? And you're, then you're going to be able to uh, make decisions like in retail. So it's going to be convenience. And that, that's why they're pushing out into the health system or into the neighborhoods. That's why those health systems are pushing into the neighborhoods because when you can choose between the three health systems and you know that the cost is more or less the same, you're going to go to the one that's down the street. Yeah. And it, it's a complicated question because there, there's so much that goes into the cost, right? So a hospital will charge you a different amount for the same service if you go to their facility at the hospital versus if you go to, let's say they set up another facility with their name on it in a retail setting and they can, they contract differently. So it's, and, and then that cost is lower for the same exact service. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I honestly don't know the answer to your question as to how it will all play out, um, you know, because hospitals can't necessarily function for less reimbursement. And so they are gonna be in a, thrown into a competitive landscape, I think, where they're gonna have to be transparent. Um, and they're gonna have to find their way to, to be more competitive with, you know, the private industry doctors. Um, so it'll just be interesting how it plays out. Great insights. That's awesome. All right. So Ryan asks, curious, curious to get your thoughts on the effects of private equity consolidating physician groups. Hmm. Well, if you ask a doctor, they're going to say, depending on whether or not they're getting purchased or not, <laughs> whether it's good or bad for the healthcare industry, right? Like that, that's basically, 
um, private equity is the, you're profiting off of healthcare. That's what they're trying to do. Um, in California, actually private equity is, is, is not legal. Um, they have their workarounds that they do in California. They create something called um, management service organizations, MSOs, to kind of come into the market on the back, back end because they can't really come in as private equity. Um, but in, in a bunch of other states have those same laws, but still they find a way in. And, you know, is it, it, it it's, I think, great for the doctors to a certain extent because they're, they're able to, to scale now, right? They're able to get better contracting. They're better able to control their costs. They don't, you know, um, they're able to have a network of physicians that refer within each other and it, and it, and it works out. Um, but, you know, to be privately owned um, in healthcare means that you're profiting off of the healthcare. And so there are downsides to that as well when it comes to quality of care, what's being cut, right? So, um, you know, when it comes to, I think from a real estate standpoint, um, you know, these groups are able to um, take a look at that competitive landscape, come in, consolidate practices, have economies of scale, pick their locations um, and offer very efficient care. Um, but that being said, you know, what happens to your overall quality of care? Uh, Joe, what do you think? Uh, you, you basically hit the head on the hammer. I mean, it's the same, uh, I guess, um, debate with private equity in general. You know, yeah, it provides, the it, it provides a lifeline to a company, but it also, what does cost cutting come out to? It comes out to thinning the workforce. It comes out to tightening up everything, dropping everything that's not essential to the business, right? But what's... Uh, cutting cutting dead weight in a uh, in a target company is different than cutting dead weight in a health system or a, or a managed population of of a, of population care right I mean how do you even define cutting dead weight when you're taking care of a community right obviously the quality of care is going to go down to some degree so you know again if I was to make it super simple I'd say that private equity is good for the doctors bad for the community is that far <laughs> off? Yeah. It's really, it's, it, I think and it depends, right? Physician community, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a complicated topic to discuss because there are those that are pro and there, there are those that are con and, and you can see both sides of it. But I think, you know, if, if most physicians in general understand the cons of it, but in order to survive this business, um, you know, if you don't want to join a large health system, you know, this is another option. Um, and, and you have to look at it because you still want to provide care to your patients. You still want to be a good doctor and do that. But you just, you don't want to constantly have to like work on the, on the narrowest of margins. So if private equity allows you to do that, yeah, you take a look at it. You know, um, you, 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 sometimes it's just a matter of survival and, and you want to be a physician in the community. You don't want yeah, to have. A, no. That's a good point. You know, you can focus on your patients a little bit more when you're not working yeah. 20 hour days trying to trying to pay your bills. Uh, the other thing, and maybe a bit of a brighter aspect, is it is deal with a private back private equity back behavioral health group. Uh, you know, historically had the funding, um, a, a, a sector that is you know in, it seems to be in quite dire need across the. country. 
the private equity people are, um, you know, I guess dynamic enough to believe in the business and, and, and roll that out nationally where maybe the more conservative um, supporters or capital sources are not willing to do that. So, you know, they're, they're growing at scale behavioral health at a time where that's needed and no one else is doing it except private equity companies. So, you know, you're, you're a patient that needs behavioral health in San Diego, you know, it's coming at the, at the end of the road from, from private equity. So, you know, in that perspective, it, it is a benefit to the, the community. So it's super convoluted. It's super case by case by target company of a private equity firm and by the private equity firm itself and by the specialty they're focused on. Um, and it's new too. It's new. So, you know, we're kind of just conjecturing at this point. I'm sure in a couple of years, it'll be proven that we're either close to right or totally wrong, but um, they are a major player in growing. Some great insights shared for sure. All right. So Eli had another question. He said, what's your opinion as bond rates and interest rates increase along with inflation, potentially settling over the Fed's 2% target rate? Where do you see MOP cap rates? MOB, I'm sorry, cap rates going if a bond is more liquid and less risky than real estate investments. Uh, what was the first part of the question again? I was reading the question. Yeah, sure. The, the so so chat. what is your what is your opinion as bond rates and interest rates increase along with inflation, potentially settling over the Fed's two percent target rate? Where do the where do you see MOB cap rates going if a bond is more liquid and less risky than real estate investments? You know, I had asked the same question to uh, someone on our team, one of the guys that does the national capital markets for us. And um, let's see what he said. You know, if the Fed's raising the overnight rate, you think it's because, you know, there's inflation, right? And they're trying to keep that inflation rate under 2% average on, on a trailing 12 month, right? So in terms of cap rates, it's it's not intuitive, but you know, from what I'm am just learning really in real time is that that doesn't necessarily affect cap rates. In fact, sometimes it compresses. Um, if they're raising the short-term interest rate, it's because the economy, right? It's because uh, everything is increasing. Inflation is coming. Real estate is looked as somewhat of a hedge against that inflation. Um, a lot of these larger groups. Uh, have less of a exposure to debt than a typical investor would. They have either locked up lines of credit at a certain interest rate, or they have their own sources of capital that are less affected than if, you know, UI and um, Nahal were buying something now and having to go to the market to get debt. Um, so they're actually bidding on those properties uh, even more so, right? In this environment, when the, you know, the overnight rate is increasing. Uh, they're bidding even more for these stabilized long-term core assets and driving cap rates down. And um, another note that I, let's see what I take in there is that, yeah, they do the fan that the property demand is up. The investors are bidding up the assets in face of, in the face of the Fed funds rate hikes. Um, at a point when the cost of long-term debt, you know, it's, it's more tracked to the tenure. If that starts to, um, you know, increases well, then yeah, at a, it's going to become sustainable. But, you know, when you see the yield curve inversion right now, or you see short-term interest rate increases, it, it doesn't seem to affect cap 
rates. You know, eventually it will, but uh, at least as it stands, not yet. Yeah. All right. So we had another semi question. So Thomas was was re mentioning regarding the the fact that we were mentioning that. Uh, that there was some worry regarding private equity coming into markets and, and consolidating these these operations and how it could potentially be a negative for the community. He was asking, why would we, why are we super worried insurance companies and medical device companies already profit off of people's health? And I guess part of part of that question relates to how is how do you think that maybe ins insurance companies are going to be affected as a result of some of this consolidation? Because I'd imagine as, as transparency becomes more readily available, that's going to eventually stream down the line and may in fact even affect insurance companies, what they're able to, you know, some issues as far as like billing out. I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I have to think about that one a little bit. Um, yeah. You know, m medical device companies and, you know, pharmaceutical companies, yes, they do profit off of healthcare. Um, the standard is different for physicians and it's, it's a legislative thing. Like, you know, it, and, and I don't know how to answer that question. I wish I had a better answer, but, oh, you know, physicians are, are held to a different standard. Like you're not allowed to be a physician and say, oh, I want to make more money, you know, off of this. You're just not allowed to do that. You can be a device company and say, oh, I'm going to reinvest into, you know, my, re my research and development and make it better for everybody. So of course we have to profit because I need the money to do more research to make it, you know, so it's just a different concept um, that's out there in the country. Um, and, and it's because, I mean, yes, you know, you don't want a physician who like looks at the bottom line every time they want to, you know, suggest a treatment plan for you. That's, that's not a good doctor, right? So, you know, there, there are different ways to look at this. Um, and so it, it, you can't look at it in terms of, okay, that company profits and this company doesn't. It's just, that, that's just the way our legislation is written. And if we really want to impact, you know, um, behavioral health or different markets that are underserved, it, it comes back to providing the reimbursements for that. You know, Congress has to do something to say, hey, this is valuable for a society. We need to treat this. We need to provide incentives for people to treat this. So we need to raise the reimbursements. Um, and, and how the insur insurance companies are never going to lose money. They have too big of a lobby. They're going to figure out how to be profitable through this whether it's increasing your premiums or whether it's paying doctors less or paying hot, they are going to keep their profits up. So I, I, you know, the insurance companies always find a way in my opinion, <laughs> like, sure. you know, no, definitely. No, that's some great insights. So one, one thing I was, I had a question really related to the resources that are, that are available for those individuals who are interested in learning more about the healthcare, real, healthcare, real estate in general. Do you have any in particular that you would recommend to people? Um, what do you think, Joe? Um, um, I think there's some free resources on, um, let's see, on healthcare real estate in general. Um, well, you can go to any of the large brokerage firms, us, CB, JLL, they all put out healthcare real estate specific um, annual reports at the very least and, and more uh, quarterly stuff as well. That's probably a great place to start. Um, that's a good, they do a good job of aggregating. Uh, really the other recommendations that we can make um, from these other service sites. But that, that's probably where I would start and you'll kind of just naturally grow from there. Definitely. Well, that's some great insights as well, for sure. All right. Yeah, so and I think in, the chat, in the chat, somebody brought up um, a good point. I just want to, I just want to reiterate this, but 
Um, they brought up that, yeah, insurance companies are becoming medical operators. I think that was Eli, and, and that's a great point. That's kind of what we're seeing happen with um, the Aetna CVS model. That's what we're seeing happen with these larger groups here. Um, you know, they're, that, that's, that's, he hit it right on the head. That, that's what's happening. Definitely. Definitely good insights from all around. That's awesome. So we probably have enough time for one more question. Um, if you guys have any others that you'd like to share, go ahead and type it away in the chat box. I'm looking on LinkedIn as well. If you guys are watching on LinkedIn. Okay. Well, it looks like you guys answered like all the, well, uh, oh, there's one last question from Eli. So more specifically to healthcare real estate, as this act is in effect, how do operators adjust when they when they can no longer predatory bill, which would help create EBITDAR coverage ratios higher than average? So as an investor, how do you underwrite this? Hmm. Maybe they can well, predict. They can no oh, predatory bill. I see what you're saying. Um, well, I mean, I, I think that the predatory billing... Um, you know, I, there are two types, I guess there, I, and I, I guess I would have to understand what you mean by that predatory mm -hmm. billing as far as, you know, not being transparent is different than when a patient is being seen who, you know, where the physician is not contracted. Um, and so I guess if you mean by not being transparent, I think right now there's already a trend towards being transparent. So I think, you know, where providers will bill a patient for an out-of-network case. Okay, so that that's being. I, I think that's less common. Um, just depending on the special the specialty, right? Like, um, I think if you're if you're not network if you're not in network and you're being billed something, um, I think that's that doesn't happen as frequently as just just not being um, transparent. So I think when you're talking about underwriting, I don't know. Um, you know, I haven't I haven't seen it as as being that common. Usually, if you're going to an ASC or a hospital, they will give you um, estimate of cost. Um, you know, I know I know in most of the practices that I've consulted for or worked with within, you know, the, we have to give a patient the breakdown of cost whether they're going to an ASC or a hospital system. So you know, that should be built into the system. Um, but, you know, maybe other people have different experiences. But I think as far as underwriting goes, you know, if, as long as those practices are in place, there shouldn't be any issue with that. Great advice. Awesome. Well, awesome, man. Well, what we'll go ahead and do now is I guess we'll go ahead and wrap up. First off, I just want to thank you both so much for your time. I know you guys are extremely busy and, you know, it's a very active real estate market, especially in San Diego. So we definitely appreciate the time that you guys have taken today to kind of share some insights with us. As far as if people wanted to get in contact with you, how would they best do that? Uh, if you want, you could share our emails in the, uh, I don't know if there's a, maybe just in the, in the post or something, we're happy to do that as well. Um, I think we're on LinkedIn too. You guys can happy to reach out through that, um, through Cushman's website anyway, we're yeah. always available. For sure. And, and, and actually what we'll do is this is all recorded as well. So we will be broadcasting this live on, on YouTube and we'll also be having it in a podcast format. So if you guys are watching this on YouTube, it'll be in the description below. And if you guys are listening to this in a podcast format like Apple, Sp Apple or Spotify, it'll be in the description below. So you'll be able to get uh, both uh, contact information and yeah, it should be a good, good thing. So, well, 
guys, thank you. Thank you guys so much for your time. We greatly appreciate it. If you guys are watching this live on LinkedIn, we all also appreciate you guys stopping by. Uh, we do this every other week. Um, and we talk about a variety of different contexts. So come back, keep engaging and, uh, we'll look forward to seeing you guys next time. Thanks Rafael. You got a great thing going on. Couldn't do it without the captain. The captain. No, I'm not the captain. No, I'm, I just facilitate. I'm the facilitator. I'm the facilitator. How about that? You're, you're a great facilitator. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Definitely. And then look forward to keeping contact with you guys and we'll, we'll see you guys next time. All right. Bye everyone. Bye everyone. See you guys.